0: If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Romans chapter 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the, in the pocket in the seat in front of you, in the pew in front of you, and you can find Romans chapter 5 in the passage that we will be reading on page 886 of that Bible. You don't have to listen long or hard before you hear someone in our culture say, he's not my type or she's just my type meaning that that person has some sort of quality or attribute that you desire and that you like, or in the other direction that you really despise and can't stand. It is something of a collection of attributes that matches you with this person really well. It is often used positively, and that this person is something that you desire. It oftentimes is used in that sense. It's often used in that sense in Scripture as well. Not that they desire one another the way we talk about desiring one another, but types are often used to compare good attributes of one person to the coming of Jesus Christ. So many figures in the Old Testament are called types. Moses is a type of Christ. Moses, who prophesies directly the words of God, who radiates the glory of God, who mediates the presence of the people. He is a type of Jesus. The Old Testament priests who take the... The very sacrifices in before God is a type of Jesus. David, a persecuted king, is a type of Jesus. And all of these are meant in a good way as well. When we speak about Moses being a type of Jesus, we're speaking about the good things that he does. We're not speaking of his negative characteristics, perhaps his short fuse. The same goes with David. We don't mean that he's a type of Jesus in his failures. Jesus doesn't follow that type but rather in the very things that he does well and right and good and true, being a faithful and true king of Israel. As we ended last week, Paul gave us a very quick and brief insight into why he spent so much time talking about Adam and working over difficult things to do so. Why take such a sharp sidetrack? Why spend the time and effort there? He had never mentioned Adam at any place in this letter up until then and then all of a sudden he appears. Paul says there at the very end of that passage that we read last week, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. We realize that that sort of language is found all throughout Scripture, again, for these positive characteristics. Yet what we find is that, in the parlance of our times, Jesus and Adam would not have been one another's type. Rather, Adam was a type of Jesus, but only in the negative sense. Showing us all that Jesus wasn't. Showing us what Jesus was to undo. So today, as Paul compares these two heads of humanity together, the one formal head of the old humanity, who is fallen and feeble, who is sold unto sin and death, who is unrighteous and sinful through and through. The other, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the formal head of the new humanity, who is faithful, strong, free Righteous and holy in all of his ways. Paul will compare these two to show how Jesus outshines Adam at every single turn. Let us then see the glory of Jesus' works as he makes right the evil that Adam has unleashed on the world. Let us begin reading to gain context in verse 12 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes this, Therefore, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the full and errant and trustworthy word of our God. As we look at this comparison between our forefather Adam and our true and better Adam, Jesus Christ, let us see that first the richness of of jesus grace outshines adam's sin the richness of jesus grace outshines adam's sin many would look at these first initial verses beginning in verse 15 and look at the kind of comparison that's being made and say well if the many died through adam and now the many are made alive through jesus it seems like those are the same groups doesn't that imply universalism and then even later in verse 18 It talks about all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. And some have come to this passage in particular and said, what we have here is this idea of universalism, that eventually all people will be saved, that the grace of Jesus Christ is so great, the love of Jesus Christ is so good, love wins, some might say, that all people will be saved at some point in time in the future. Others would come to this and say, well, Paul is here, at best, inconsistent, if not at worst, contradictory, because there are other places where he clearly lays out that there is destruction and judgment coming for those who do not place their faith in Jesus Christ. In each one of these, though, I think that people are misunderstanding what the comparison is of. The comparison isn't really about the numbers. It's not about saying, well, here is many, here is many, these things are equal. The point is the richness of the grace of Jesus Christ focus is on the depth of the disease and the richness that Jesus Christ provides in the solution to that. The point isn't that all are saved, but that mercy and grace in Jesus Christ are more than a match for any evil that is wrought by the sin of Adam. Just as many fell, so also will many be saved. Let's not mince words. There are millions and billions of people who not knowing Jesus Christ will one day know hell. And they will know eternal suffering and punishment. But so also will millions and billions, an untold mass of humanity, who will do that very same judgment, one day be saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, solely because of his wonderful and magnificent grace. I had the opportunity to attend a funeral in the past week. Funerals are, in some sense, Some of the best times to preach, when you have somebody who is a beloved saint who you can look at and say, listen, not only was there a good confession, but their life matched the very confession that they had. And you can can speak to the salvation of this person with a full conviction and assurance of your heart. That's a good day. The problem comes when that person is not that. The problem comes when that person is made a confession somewhere in the past, but they've lived a life that clearly does not demonstrate it, or they have never really truly made a confession. They've always just kind of lived on the edge of Christianity, hoping by osmosis, perhaps, that some grace will shed off on them. Pastors respond to this in really only one way, because no one wants to stand up in front of people and say, So, you know, Craig here died. Evil man. I hope he enjoys hell, because that's where he is. Not only does that not do anything to comfort the family, but it doesn't allow for any gospel that you're going to give after that point to ever reach them because it doesn't seem at all like you have any compassion at all. So when pastors do want to be compassionate, they typically go too far in the other direction and they will cling on to any hope of faith that they have ever found in this person at all. Yeah. Yeah, he was led a life of rampant sin and frankly, cursed God and man quite often and he was surly and not very faithful even to his best of friends. But remember that one day he made that confession, y'all? That was a good day. Let's cling on to that. This guy was clearly saved because of it. And what they do is they, they try to cling on to anything they can to prove to you that this person's in a better place. And that is why and how they give comfort to the families. Neither of those things is healthy. It is not healthy to give a man who doesn't live a good and faithful life a eulogy that sounds as though he did do that. It certainly isn't a comfort to the people who sit there who then will one day face judgment. What is best to do is simply this. God is rich in mercy. And he is rich in grace. And oftentimes we don't know what happens in the last moments of somebody's life. But we know that there will be plenty of people in heaven that when we show up there, if theirs were the first face that we saw, we would wonder for just a split second if maybe we were sent to hell. And we would look at them and be like, how did you get in here? Like, you, you're a scoundrel. You're, you were rotten. You were a cheat. I knew you. How did you get in here? And they're going to say, yeah, I know. Think of the grace of our Lord. He brought me here. I didn't deserve it. I'll be like, yeah, I get that now. Because I don't deserve it either. Don't misunderstand. We don't need to lower the standards of Christian living. We don't need to kind of make everything as, as light and hairy as we can. We want to uphold the fact that Jesus calls us to lives of obedience, and that is the safest and most God-honoring place to live. But at the same time, we are always banking on the fact that Jesus Christ is more merciful than we think. And he is more gracious than we conceive of. We hear and we know that there are millions and billions of people who will go to hell, but Jesus has saved millions and billions of others. We have to remember how lavish and rich grace in Jesus Christ is. That even though by one death, sin was able to reach all of us, and all of us die by that death, even then, by one man's death, he was able to reach all of those and save those whom God has set aside for him. The promise to Abraham is true. Look up at the stars, Abraham, and count them if you can. John records it this way in the book of Revelation. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. He says, "I, I ran out of fingers and toes a long time ago. I've got no idea what I'm looking at. I don't know how many people are here. But it is like the stars of heaven, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, more than you could possibly imagine and possibly count. How rich is Jesus' grace. And on top of all of that, think of the faith that Paul must have had We have good indications that this is indeed going to come true. We can look back through history. We can think of all the people who are being saved now as as the gospel spreads through parts of Africa and Asia. We can look at the grace that God has wrought in Europe and even in America and the multitudes of people that he has saved here. But remember, at the time that Paul writes this, where he has this incredible faith that Jesus Christ is going to save multitudes of people. At this point in time, Paul has a couple dozen churches that have a couple of feeble members who have tons of problems and issues everywhere he turns he's putting out fires and they're being persecuted by what is at that time the greatest political and military might that the world has ever seen and yet he can look at that situation and be like yeah jesus is going to save a lot of people how faithful how faithful is our lord to be true to that word jesus said the kingdom of heaven It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Why is that so? Because Jesus' grace is richer than Adam's sin. Two, the result of Jesus' grace outshines Adam's sin. In verse 16, we read this. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Entropy is a different, difficult concept to, to understand in science. Basically, it's the idea that things always fall apart that order never stays where it ought to stay, but that chaos always comes. It's a scientific way kind of of saying that moths will eat and rust will destroy everything in this world. If you take a pack of cards and you were to shuffle it and shuffle it well, you would not expect on turning it over that you would find two of diamond, the three of diamond, the four of diamond, the five of diamond, all the way through the diamonds, and then two of hearts, three of hearts, four of hearts, all the way through hearts. What you would expect to find is a random collection of cards because On its own, this world never tends toward order. It always tends toward disorder. It always tends toward chaos. There's a religious equivalent for this. If entropy is order never coming out of chaos, but chaos always naturally brought out of order, then holiness never comes from unholiness. Cleanliness and cleanness before God never comes from uncleanness. You find this all the way through the Old Testament, this sort of pattern that the holy don't make the unholy things holy. But the unholy thing can defile even that which is holy. The Day of Atonement, even the temple and the tabernacle have to be cleansed with blood. Not because they are unholy in themselves, but because they exist in a world that is unholy. And the holiness doesn't radiate out, making the land around them unholy, but rather it works the other direction. The death and the sin of the people of Israel pollute even the temple of God and it needs to be cleansed. Even the priests, set aside for God and holy for God, can become defiled and holy and unclean simply by touching that which is dead. They touch a dead body, they become defiled. That dead body does not become holy. The entropy of unholiness works in one direction only. With one exception. Jesus seems to be completely and utterly outside of the power of that entropy. In Luke 8, we read of this beautiful story of a woman who has a discharge of blood for 12 years. That would have been an immensely difficult position for her to be in for any of a number of reasons, not just for physical reasons, but she would have been isolated and alone. You think back over the course of the last year, and you know people who were isolated and alone in 2020 because of the virus. We did our best to isolate ourselves as as a family, but even so, I had my whole family, and I'm kind of an introvert, so it was perfectly fine for me. But there are many people who are extroverts. There are many people who wanted to have interactions with people, but because they were elderly or otherwise, they, they just, they knew that it was wiser to keep themselves quarantined and they did so imagine going through that isolation which has got detrimental health effects throughout our entire culture imagine going through that only you're the only one going through 2020 in a culture by the way that desires touch and closeness much more than ours this woman couldn't possibly have had it spent all of her money trying to be cured But she heard of jesus and she thought you know he can heal people so what i'm going to do is i'm going to come real close to him and i'm going to touch the hem of his robe And it's a dangerous game to play she's going to defile every single person that she touches going through there this massive crowd that is following jesus and what's more touching the hem of his robe is a really iffy proposition she does so she's healed But Jesus knows that something has happened, and he says, Who was it that touched me? Peter says something about, hey, there's a lot of people in the crowd. But Jesus says, no, 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 someone touched me. I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, Luke writes, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed Why did she have to explain that? Because she was kind of caught. If she touched him, yes, she thought she would be healed, but she also realized that unholiness goes in one direction only. I could defile him, the anointed of God. I am defiling by touching him. So she trembled. She hid herself. But she realized after time, you can't hide yourself from Jesus. So she confesses. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. See, the deal is, you can all overcome entropy. It's not terribly hard. You just need to put energy into it. That deck of cards that you messed up by shuffling, you can undo that. It just takes a lot of time. You just got to make a pile of twos, make a pile of threes, and make a pile of fours, and make a pile of hearts and organize them and arrange them. You've got to put effort and energy and power into it, but you can overcome it. Jesus does the same here. The result of Adam's sin was a growing pile of sin and death. And even still, Jesus justifies. We cannot overcome our sin and shame. Our flesh is weak, as Paul might say, but Jesus is not. He has the power to overcome the entropy of our sin and the entropy of our wickedness. He can break that entropy. And he can bring order and peace and justification and that which only before had condemnation. Condemnation after one trespass brought death and the trespasses mounted and the sins mounted and continued and increased. And entropy takes on a life of its own. The nature of this world emboldens it like an avalanche, like the falling down or the coming of a tide of a tsunami. Adam's sin has entropy and energy on its side. It ever mounts, it grows, and there's no force to stop it. And yet every single one of those sins, all that evil, all that momentum, Jesus still justifies. He completely and utterly reverses the course of all of it. One trespass brought death. Mount those trespasses up. Build them up to the sky. And Jesus still justifies. Condemnation is reversed. No longer are we condemned, but we are actually justified freely in his sight. This is the gift that he gives to us. We were condemned in Adam, condemned doubly by our own sin. And yet, Jesus is holy enough, he is powerful enough, he is gracious enough to overcome all of this. Jesus' grace, the result of Jesus' grace, outshines Adam's sin. Thirdly, the restoration in Jesus' grace outshines Adam's sin. Verse 17, For if, he says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death is indeed a power over us. Adam's sin placed us under the power of sin and death. It was by listening simply to the voice of the serpent. He placed us under the serpent. He placed us under sin and under death in that one act. And Jesus does all he can and all he can is more than enough to restore us to the position that Adam should have had in the beginning. He makes us into that which we were always supposed to be. We reign with him. We might have thought that the comparison should have been turned in a different way. As death reigned over us, maybe now life should reign over us. Paul says, no, those who receive the abundance of this grace, they reign. They're the ones who reign. This was Adam's charge. In Genesis one twenty seven. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam was a king. He was gardening the garden of the Creator as a king. He was to rule and reign over everything that he could see because he was a king. But he forfeited that right. And taking the fruit that was offered to him, he laid down his life to that which he should have ruled over, and it became master over him. But Jesus undoes the foolishness of Adam's sin and allows us to reign as we ought to have. Let's make no hidden secret about this. You are here to serve the true king. You were bought with a price. You are placed under his rule and authority. You are servants and servants alone. You are here to do his bidding. It just so happens that our true king is so kind, great, glorious, and majestic that the only ones who will ever be fit to serve him are themselves kings and queens. And so, As he makes you fit for his service, that's precisely what he makes you into. You are the kings and queens of the universe. But Paul says here, not only do we reign, but we reign in life. I love that phrase, we reign in life. It reminded me of a a wonderful quote that makes it both into the movie and from the book of the Lord of the Rings. Bilbo is... As he says, 111 1 years old, he's 111 years old, but he, he looks much, much younger. And he, he seems by all appearances much younger, and Gandalf is questioning him about it. But he, he realizes that he doesn't feel as young as he might look. He says that he feels something a bit like butter spread over too much bread. How is was like that? We are thin. We're not thick with life. And as we get older, we get thinner with life. That piece of bread gets longer and our butter starts to run out. And as we get thinner and thinner, we don't have the vitality that we used to have. We don't have the energy that we used to have. We know what it means to be thin in life. Kids are not this way. Kids are thick with life. They run, they play, they bounce off the walls, they have simple joys. We simply just run out of this. Adam wasn't like that. A- Adam was thick with life. He would have known what it was to run without tiring, to have joy, wonder, enthusiasm, power, and love for every single moment of his life. He would have been thick with life in that way. But death in his sin slowly won out. And over time, it thinned him out. And at some point in time in our lives, we realize that we are not so much living as we are simply postponing death, as our lives get thinner and thinner and thinner. But Jesus has promised us that we will reign in life, never to be thin, always to be thick with life, full with life, ever-flowing, ever-abounding life. This is the gift of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, the righteousness of Jesus' grace outshines Adam's sin. The righteousness of Jesus' grace outshines Adam's sin. One of my all-time favorite stories is the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. It's a lot of people's favorite stories, and not alone in this. Elijah is kind of alone as he says, the prophets of Yahweh have gone the way of the dodo. He is the only one who is left. And there are 450 prophets of Baal, a foreign god who has made his way into the kingdom of Israel that the king is supporting and the queen is supporting and so all the people are supporting. There are 400 priests of Asherah. At some point in time, Elijah's kind of sick of this. So he says, listen, I'm the only one that's left, but here's what we're going to do, Ahab. You're going to call all your, your idiot prophets and we're going to have us a throwdown. And what's going to happen is you're going you're to bring two cows in and they're going to pick one of them, and I'll take whichever one they reject. And you're going to take all of them over to Yonder Hill. And you're going to pile up some wood, and they're going to cut that bull up, and they're going to put it on top of that, and then they're going to call out to their God. 450 of them. They're going to call out. They're going to sing. They're going to dance. They're going to yell. They're going to scream. They're going to do whatever they can. They're going to call out. When they're done, I'm going to. And whoever has that wood light up first, they win. The people said, sounds scientific. We should do that. He is outpowered. He is outnumbered. From that far hill, though, he still finds a way to talk smack. In 1827, we read at noon, Elijah mocked them. They were doing this for hours up to this point. Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god Either he is musing or he is relieving himself, which means exactly what you think it means. Or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Maybe you need to try a little bit harder, scream a little bit louder, and they begin to cut themselves and they begin to flail themselves and they begin to do everything they can until they are exhausted. And then Elijah says, okay, so let's work on mine now. I I need you guys to build a trench around it and I need you to start hauling water. As much water as you can, douse that wood, douse the offering until the trench fills up. They do. A very simple prayer lights up like a candle. All the water evaporates. It's a brilliant scene. Elijah then does whatever it is that 8th century prophets would do when they're equivalent of a mic drop and struts off to go hide. We won't talk about that. But nevertheless, it's a great victory. Why is it a great victory? It's a great victory because they had everything earthly on their side. Elijah understood that the power of God didn't. Didn't need anything from him. It needed a simple prayer, but that was only for Elijah's sake. It didn't matter how much water was on that wood. It didn't matter how much water was in the trench. All of that was simply to show, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that Yahweh is glorious and Baal is a fake. God is in the business of working with those who want His glory to shine. But don't think that He only allows His prophets to get on this, He does it Himself. Listen to what Paul says about the law. He says, now the law came in to increase trespass. It's an absolutely amazing statement that a Jew would make. That God literally gave the law with the purpose of giving you the law because he knew you would break it. So that you would break it. So that trespasses would increase. So that that the, the issue that God was dealing with would mount higher and higher. It's like throwing water on the wood. We're going to pile it high. We're going we're gonna to make sure that this problem is seen as a problem and the immense problem that it truly is. And the more sin and the more trespass occurred, the more condemnation the people piled on themselves, the more the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ could shine and the more glorious his righteousness becomes. God allowed sin and trespass to be piled up, placing more and more on the shoulders of Jesus to show just how much he could carry. To prove just how magnificent his grace and his justification truly were. One trespass and one act of righteousness. One trespass leading to more and more trespass. One act of righteousness to undo it all. Paul doesn't mean to sort of downplay the righteous life that Jesus Christ lived. Indeed, if he didn't live a righteous life like ours, only without sin, there would be no reason to speak of the one act of righteousness in giving his life for ours. If he sinned, he would be giving his life for himself. The very fact that there is this one act of righteousness in him laying down his life for us shows the glory of Jesus Christ shows the righteousness of his grace outshining Adam's sin. The point is, in so many ways, Adam's one act of stupidity seems utterly overwhelming. Yet, Christ's death overwhelms even that. His blood can turn back even the most ferocious of tides and disperse any of the oncoming destructions that his people faced. Adam's sin brought in death and destruction and unleashed evil upon the world. It bent the right paths of the Lord, which has led all of us astray from the paths that we ought to have walked on. It is the very fountainhead for all of the wickedness you see today. Whether that wickedness is in abortion, or it is in governments that suppress and oppress their people. Regardless of where you look around and see it, from the cheats that you work with, to the people who speak evilly behind your back, to, gasp, your own evil and wickedness. All of that stems from this one act of this one man. All of it mounts over time and Jesus with one act of righteousness is able to undo all of it. The blood of Jesus covers all of those sins for you and for everyone else. Consider how great that one act is that God considers it as payment for all the sins of all those who receive the abundance of grace in Jesus Christ, that my individual sin piled high, not just the things that I do that I ought not do, the things that I ought to do that I don't do, the wicked thoughts that flow through my head daily pile up against me. Jesus doesn't just justify those. Yours as well, every single person in this room who knows the abundance of grace that Jesus Christ has given to us. All of those sins he has freely forgiven in that one act of righteousness, but not just for the people in here. For everyone across the United States in the Eastern time zone who's meeting now, further west who will be, further to the east who have already met, who are living today, who have confessed the name of Jesus Christ, he forgives all those sins, but not just those Everyone from this time all the way back who has confessed the name of the Lord, who awaited a Messiah, who knew that that Messiah had come in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he has forgiven all of those. And not just that, but going forward, so long as the Lord tarries, every sin that is committed, every sin that is committed by those who will know the abundance of the grace of Jesus Christ freely, freely, forgiven he makes them righteous how great an act is that one act the reign of sin through death is compared to the reign of grace through righteousness sin indeed took us captive but the power of the grace of god through the justification in christ overwhelmed all of that sin while sin and death are great powers over us and they are indeed great powers over us so that we could do nothing against them, even if we had wanted to, which we didn't want to. We had no powers to upend or to still them, yet grace is all the more powerful. And through the work of Jesus Christ, he is able to undo sin and death even in our lives. Now, I realize all of this is somewhat abstract because we're talking about Adam. And you you don't have a connection to Adam. He doesn't show up at your family reunions and you're like, oh, Adam again, right? Right? It's said that some 16 million people in our world carry the DNA of Genghis Khan, okay? I doubt that if they were to go around and pillage a couple of towns, they would say, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Ah, oh, Dad Genghis is coming out in me again, you know? They don't, they don't relate it back to him any more than you relate your sin back to Adam. It, it seems like it's really distant from us. Yet still, this is the connection that Paul wishes to drive home When we live in the flesh, when we live on our own desires, when we seek our own good, when we chart our own path, we are acting simply as Adam did. We relive with each sin the very trespass of Adam, disregarding the Word of God, claiming we are wise and becoming fools, and showing that sin and death do indeed have power over us. But Jesus is able to overcome not just the abstract sin of our ever distant Father, but He is able to overcome ours as well. For some of you, this seems a bit too fantastic. It sounds like the kind of fantasy book that you would pick up where there was a land and a people who were under a curse and they were awaiting a hero to come and undo that curse or a conspiracy that goes down to the deepest levels that somebody comes and exposes and undoes. If it seems too fantastic for you, just think of this. Jesus is not just the negative type of Adam. He is the negative type of us as well, of you and of me. He undoes all of the evil that we do, every inch of it. He is everything that we should be and aren't. And he is everything that we aren't and should be. Jesus' grace outshines Adam's sin, but it outshines ours as well. Praise be to our great God and Savior for his wonderful grace. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you are truly an incredible Savior. The immenseness of your salvation can become lost on us, in us, as we only think about how you saved us, or how you only saved me. But as your word claims, you have saved many. Those who call upon your name, you saved to the utmost. Not just the greatness of my sin, but you have overcome the greatness of all our sins. And just as our father Adam marched us out of God's presence into a land of death, And despair. So even now, you are leading us back into a better garden, into life, into the very presence of God. Truly, you are worthy of all our worship and praise. We proclaim this not only for our good, but also for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and sing with us, worthy?